brothers and sisters have been sharing, I heard a theme that I've been hearing now for several weeks. Sister, Christ, Sister Christy and then also the sister back here was saying that they see the Lord breaking generational curses. And I know that's a term that's oftentimes used perhaps too loosely. But we also know that there are times in the, in the Bible where the man of God is travailing and confessing the sins of the fathers and acknowledging the wrong that has taken place throughout the generations in an attempt to stem the tide of evil and turn and find the grace of God. And on several occasions recently, I have encountered the same sort of recognition from people in the church. A brother wrote me while I was away, and he said that he had had occasion to go to a family reunion. And I can only paraphrase here what he described, but he said that he went to this family reunion and he was able to spend time with the relatives of his now departed father. And he saw the selfishness. He saw the cruelty, the isolation, the depression, and otherwise the misery that defined the family of his now departed dad. This one wouldn't speak to that one, and that one was ugly. And, and he said that he, this, this overwhelming gratitude began to well up in his soul that his dad made the decision that he made some 40-odd years ago to set his family on a different course. And then I also had occasion to hear of a very similar situation where an elderly couple is going through the reductions of, of life and the selfishness that starts to come to the surface, the ingratitude, the unkindness, and how the siblings of this elderly individual say to one another, when I get old, I'm not going to be like that. They're so repulsed, they're so undone by this specter of ugly selfishness that they say, to one another, when I get old, I'm not going to be like that. I'm determined I'm not going to be like that. One of my own relatives in the world said, I see that mentality and propensity in myself, but I've made up my mind I'm not going to be like that when I'm old. You know, and if, if that were enough, then selfishness would have ended generations ago. But that is a tragic failure to see the severity, the depth of sin or its remedy. We had occasion while we were in South Africa to minister from Ephesians 2 where Paul says, we were all children of wrath just as all the rest. But when he says it, he says, we were by nature children of wrath, just as all the rest. 
He doesn't say we were by circumstance. He doesn't say we were by parental upbringing. He doesn't say we were by slip up. He says we were by nature children of wrath just as all the rest. And the dogma of humanism, the gospel of humanism that the world lives by, puts its faith in mankind, puts its faith in man's ability to redeem himself and to come together and see the good in humanity. And so it is determined to acknowledge evil, but only as a product of circumstance, a product of mistakes, a product of environment. So every evil that is perceived in the heart of man, we look carefully, where did this begin? Your mother frowned at you while she was chopping vegetables one day, didn't she? And, and all of it is an attempt to find some source outside of the rotten vortex of human selfishness so that we can blame anything else besides the one thing that is the problem, the heart that is desperately wicked, deceitful above everything else who can know it. And I thought about this relative, and my mom said, she said, you cannot live your whole life on a trajectory of selfishness and then expect to do an about-face and achieve opposite results when you're 89 years old. Deuteronomy 32 says, oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. In this scripture, the Bible is telling us that wisdom is the ability to anticipate where this is going to end up. Wisdom is not the ability to cross your arms and cross your eyes and furrow your brow and see through other people. Wisdom is the ability to know that I'm starting here and I'm going to end up there if I don't change course. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. You see, right now we're standing, all of us are standing, pointing somewhere. We have a momentum, whether that be a momentum of faith or an inertia of unbelief. We have a momentum right now that is going to take us in one direction or another. And if we were wise, we would be able to see, I am heading in the wrong direction. Or if we were wise, we would be able to see, God, by your grace, I have fixed my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, and I'm not letting go until I reach the end of my faith, the salvation of my soul. Oh, that they were wise and understood this and would know and consider their latter end. In Psalms 39, he says, Yahweh, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait 
My hope is in you. We all know the scripture in James where he says, Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes away. People who can't take God and his word seriously are people who haven't encountered death enough. They have not stared the stark reality of all of our destiny in the face and gone, oh God, I'm not ready for that. And the remedy for complacency is those tragic brushes with eternity that snap us out of our indifference and make us feel like we've got to hang on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. One of the biggest blessings in my life was starting from the time I was about 14 or 15. 20 years now, I went to nursing homes. And I saw the end of the attitudes that my parents were trying to uproot from my teenage heart. I saw the pride. I saw how foolish it looked. An aged man, a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. I saw it. I saw vanity. I looked it straight in the face. The mincing lips. You know, the the gestures. I saw it in its ugly latter-end state. And it was repulsive to me. I saw the strong and I saw the weak and I saw the pretty. I saw the ambitious. I saw the wealthy. And they were all the same. They were all pathetic and pitiful and needy of God. I remember this one lady, we called her the judge's wife. Because she was so proud of having been the wife of an important person. That was her identity. That and her manipulative looks and behavior. She still smeared the lipstick on thick until it crawled up into the crevices of her aged face. She powdered on the makeup, the mascara. But there was something so false about it. She'd come in with skirts too short and, and, and try to flirt with us. She didn't know that she was in her 80s or 90s. And I don't say this to dishonor her. I say this to dishonor the placating Christianity that didn't stop her sooner and say, wake up! This is a farce! This is going to betray you someday. Wake up! Consider your latter end! There's a famous quote that says, call no man happy until the day of his death. But long before that was coined, the wisest man before Jesus said, Wisdom is in the house of mourning. But a fool does not know his end. Why is wisdom in the house of mourning? Why is wisdom in the house of mourning? Why do we walk into a house where someone has just died? And and, and why does the Bible tell us that that provides us with wisdom? with lucidity and accurate appraisal of our lives. Because only when you start at the end and then work back can you make good decisions in the present. I remember when my dad passed away this past July, surrounded by all of his sons and daughters and 
grandchildren. We were squeezed into that room until we could barely move. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we had probably sung a hundred songs in that little span of time before his departure. And his wife was there and his children were there. Like layers, we were surrounding him. And those that couldn't fit into the room were spilled out into the living room. And just exactly when the clock struck six o'clock, he was carried into glory and concluded his, his life here on earth. And as we praised God, and that's what we did, yes, through tears and shaking sobs that took us to each other's arms, but as we praised God, my mom said, well done, that good and faithful servant. And we praised God and we, we glorified the Lord for the rest that he could have in the presence of God. And my mom said immediately after, she said, you want to live your life knowing that the decisions you make are going to decide who's with you in your final hour. You know, we all go through moments where we think we understand things that we don't understand. And we think we see through people and we don't even see ourselves. But wisdom is to know where we're going. And I look around this room and I see men in their 70s and 80s who changed course radically. Some of them were inclined to be intellectuals and others of them were inclined to be prosperous businessmen and others wash up failures. But all of them made a turn. Men and women, young and old, they all made this pivot. And one after another, we see them coming toward the finish line or crossing the finish line. And from the house of mourning, we look back and we say, I think I understand how I should be going, the direction and course and purpose of my life. You see, it's too late to get to that place of neediness, to get to that place where your mind can no longer sit on the throne and your strength is no longer your ready servant. Your eyesight is failing and you're totally dependent. You feel lost. At that point, it's too late. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And I look at those who are finishing the course and there's not a one of them who I would say, God, I don't want to finish like that. Every last one of them, I say, God, help me to finish like that. And then I look at the world and I see the conclusion of their stubbornness, the conclusion of their independence. And I would have to be a fool to envy the wicked. Only in the present with the chip still on their shoulder and the vanity still intact, could I start to envy the wicked. But when I consider their latter end, I am repulsed. And I say, God, I'm barely going to make it, but I'm going to give everything I have to finish in this course. Amen. And win in the prize. You see, in your pride, in your blinded pride, you think you can pick and choose. But it says in Hebrews 
13 and 7. I've got it here. He says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Whatever we know, we don't know anything until we see how someone finishes the course. And then we say, that's what I want. I remember my mom calling me up at 4 o'clock in the morning. My dad was facing an epic battle. And if you think that because of your gifts or your wisdom, at the end you're not going to face everything that everybody faces, you're mistaken. But here was a man facing an epic battle. And as we began to talk and we began to pray, and you could see the battle. It must have lasted, I don't know, 15 seconds as he looked and he said, I'm not going to trust what I think I know. I'm going to trust the relationships that God has given me. It was difficult. It was painful. Probably more painful for us in some ways than for him. But with just laying a word on a plate, he was able to accept it and choose the course upstream, the course of trust, the course of love, the the course of victory. He submitted as much or more than anybody you've ever seen. Death is the great equalizer, they say. We all are obliged to give everything. Now, if you live manipulating your way off the cross, who have you cheated in the end? Who have you cheated in the end? Who is going to bear you up? Those whom you rejected? Those whom you contested and fought against? Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive to them, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. There is some grace that's going to flow into your life through those who you now are submitting to. And if you figure out how to outfox submission, how to weasel and wheedle your way off the cross, who have you deprived? Who have you robbed? Who have you cheated? Yourself. Brothers and sisters, don't try to live without discipline. Don't hope to avoid correction. Stand in the light. Live in the openness of truth and let God deal with you now. If we would judge ourselves now, we would not be judged. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. It's actually easier than you might think to avoid the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. He gives grace to the humble. Just bristle a little bit. Just rebuff it a little bit. Just bring that argumentative spirit that says, I don't need this or want this. But at the end, who have you cheated? In this room today, it's not hard to do despite to the spirit of grace. It's not hard to feel that prick of conviction and survive it. 
It's not hard to feel that invitation of hope and faith and withstand it. God does not kick down the door. He stands at the door and knocks. The ultimate sacrifice that we can give him is the ultimate gift that he gave us, which was our free will. He gave us our free will so that love would not coerce us, so that we would choose to trust him, choose to submit to him, giving up that one thing that we can hold on to. Life may crowbar you, but at the end, it's not a sacrifice if it wasn't willingly given. Do you understand? My mom told me, I don't think she would mind me saying, with tears, she said, she was talking about this situation. She said, this man in his 90s loves this woman at 89 more than I ever realized, she said. She said his affection for her is so deep. When she's coming home from the hospital, he wants Please go pick up these flowers and please get this gown and please make sure this is just right for her. And he said, my mom said, there's no awareness on the other side of even what's happening. Absolutely no awareness. But you know, the greatest love and the greatest gift that somebody can give you is not flowers and a new gown. The greatest gift that anybody can give you is the truth. The greatest gift that somebody can give you is to trust That they love you when they tell you things about yourself that you don't want to hear. And that likely nobody else will tell you. If there's somebody in your life who tells you things that nobody else will tell you, you need to thank that person. You need to praise God for that person. Because flowers will not see you through the Jordan River. Flowers will not sustain your spirit in a time of trial and sickness. Saying I love you and you're the most beautiful woman in the world, that's all important. But that is not the epitome of the saving grace of God. But the grace of God is the word of his grace. Whoever keeps God's word, John says, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. You know, somebody, an intellectual I respect, very intelligent individual, he once, he recently released a book in which he posited that Western culture was the balance between two opposites, science and reason on the one hand and extremism and faith on the other hand. And this man, who's not unintelligent, he's very brilliant, he said that extremism is the danger we see in Islam and runaway reason is the danger we see in the Third Reich, but praise God, Western society figured out how to balance the two. His exact words were, Western society brilliantly balanced Jerusalem and Athens. And I really was peeved by this. And... I thought, this is really silly because he's acting like extremism is a thing. It's an adjective. It's not a philosophy. It's not a belief. To say that something is extreme, they've called it extremism in order to make it a thing, but to say something is extreme is to describe the extent by which you do something. 
And reason really isn't a philosophy, and it's not a belief system either. It's a tool in pursuit of a belief system or philosophy. So this is really a lie. It's not that we're trying to balance extremism and, and, uh, and reason. Reason presupposes a starting point. Extremism certainly presupposes a starting point and an end point. So what is the real conflict in our lives and in the life, in the culture that we live in today? The real conflict oversimplified is there are two Gospels. One says that man is good and if he will collaborate enough and, and remedy his environmental challenges, the world spirit and the good of man will arise to bring an everlasting utopia. That is the gospel according to Lucifer. He said, you will be as God. The other says, man is capable of much good, but he's got a permanent break and flaw inside of him. And he is inclined toward good, but more inclined toward evil when self is threatened. So if man is ever threatened, if he ever feels cornered, he departs from good and he does evil. So the only good in the world has to be a transcendent source, and that is God. But those are the two Gospels. Man's good, God's good. That's the two Gospels. Belief in the innate goodness of man. It's not reason and extremism. It's worshiping the innate goodness of man or worshiping the innate goodness of God. And when somebody says... I don't want to be like mom when I get old. They are, they are correctly perceiving that mom has something wrong in her life. But they are reducing that down to a pin dot problem instead of a nature problem. They are adopting the philosophy of humanism. They are saying mom's good but mom's got some flaws. But the truth is, is it's much bigger than that. All of us have a warring nature, have two warring natures inside. One is trying to please God, and the other is fighting against that, trying to please self, and doing whatever it has to to advance self's interests. And so only a community, and only a family in a community, that recognizes the severity and the extent of sin and its root, only that environment of a community and a family in a community can keep that ugly self crucified so that when we face those ultimate battles, we don't have to look like the opposite of what we always projected, the got-it-together, loving, holier-than-thou individual. Dad used to say you can nail this hand down and that foot down and this one down, but... Who's going to nail down the hand that swings the hammer? It takes a body. It takes people you can trust. Sister Amanda told us recently about a study that showed by changing the way you think, you can change your life, even your physiological DNA and makeup. Am I right? Don't tell me if I'm not. No. <laughs> you all heard it. I'm right because that's what she said. That's a powerful thought. All thoughts are powerful. And we choose what motif, what narrative we're going to bring our thoughts into captivity to. 
Some of us are born with certain inclinations that make us more inclined to be depressed, more inclined to be self-centered. Well, that's all of us. So we'll say more inclined to be depressed. Others are more inclined to be cheerful. Others are more inclined toward cancer. Others are more inclined toward athleticism. But we recognize those inclinations in us that pull us in the wrong direction and we fight them. We don't succumb to them. We don't say, this is me. We say, this is me, but I need to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. This is me, but I'm bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of the mind of Christ. I am being renewed in the spirit of my mind. And we say, well, (laughs) somebody can't change themselves. She gave an example of people who had HIV and who were instructed to think and to behave and to focus their attention toward kindness, joy, gratitude, generosity. Generosity, joy, and gratitude. And what was was the outcome of that change? That they had 300,000 times the resistance to virus. 300,000 times the resistance to virus as the people in the study who did not do this focused channeling of their thinking. Will you have 300,000 times the resistance to the devil when you walk out of this room? It'll only be if you hear the word of God with faith and you know it can change your life. You can't sit there like a bump on a log. You got to sit there like someone who's soaking up every drop of water. You got to come with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That's the one who's going to get filled, that's the one who's going to get the blessing. You've got to look at people who have the fruit in their life that you don't have and who are nearing the finish line in the way that you want to finish. And you've got to say, I'm going to imitate their faith. My faith isn't working, so I'm going to try Brother Joel's faith. I'm going to try Brother Barry's faith. I'm going to try Sister Camille's faith. Can I get a witness? Amen. Well, if your faith works for you, stick with it. But if you've got one of those corpse faiths, that doesn't have works, is dead. It's a corpse faith, you understand? This inert, motionless, lifeless, ineffectual faith. Get rid of that faith and ask God to show you people who have better results and imitate their faith. What a promise that I can imitate somebody's faith. It says that Jesus was preaching and suddenly they started taking the tiles off the roof and and, and four men were lowering, lowering a cripple down in front of Jesus. And Luke says, and when Jesus saw their faith. Faith is visible. Faith is right out there in the open. Well, when you see somebody who gets results, imitate their faith. You know, Balaam is like many Christians. In Numbers 23 and 10... Can somebody pull that up, Numbers 23 and 10, and read that to us? I want to get the whole thing. Go ahead. This is. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number one fourth of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. This is the prototypical charlatan. This is the poster child for the false prophet, Balaam the son of Beor, the one who's not of the people. Amen. 
And when he gets up there and he looks out over the people of God, he sees their relationships, he sees their separation. And he says, who can number the dust of Jacob? Who can number the descendants of Jacob? I want to let my death be like the death of the righteous. Amen. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my death, let my final end be like theirs. My dad preached almost 50 years ago, you can't die the death of the righteous if you don't live the life of the righteous. But this is how Christians are. They look in the Bible. Oh, who can number the miracles? Let me die like Paul. Let me die like James. You're not gonna. You're fooling yourself. Because you don't have the faith of James. You don't have the faith of Paul. You don't have the humility. You're all bottled up inside yourself. You wouldn't tear a roof apart in order to get somebody in front of Jesus. You think that faith to death. God help us. Amen. Help us to live the life of the righteous. Help us to embrace the cords that bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. Help us to find ourselves in our final days saying, Oh, thank you, Jesus, for every word of correction. Thank you, Jesus, for every mirror that showed me the ugliness of myself because I'm not serving the God of self. I'm serving the living God. Amen. And I can cross this Jordan. Amen. Because he gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they are. My mom said to me yesterday with tears, she said, I'm so thankful for the discipleship of your father who saw these things when they were small and would not let them destroy my life. You know you've truly come to a revelation of who you are and who God is and what his grace is when you can say that. When you can say to someone with tears, thank you for not letting me go my way. You see, Balaam, he, he, he wanted to do God's will, but he wanted his own will more. So he asked, and he asked the Lord, can I go with Balak? You just see the coins in the bag, and he wanted to go really bad. And Can I go, please, Lord? And, no, can't go with Balak. Please, God, can I go with Balak? Prayed and prayed. Finally, the Lord says, okay, you can go. But you do only what I tell you. Okay, okay. Dad says we can go. He gets on his donkey and starts heading out. And the angel of the Lord's waiting to kill him. Kill him for doing what God just told him he can do? No, it's just a testament to how fast the heart can change. How quickly you can go from saying, I'm only going to do your will, to getting up and getting on your donkey and co-opting God's will again, making it your ambition. He was, the madness of the prophet was, was, he was restrained by a dumb animal, the Bible says. Amen. Even animals have a better sense sometimes of what their latter end is. I like how the donkey, after he spoke on God's behalf, he spoke a little on his behalf, too. <laughs> He's like, now that I got my mouth open, I want you to know, I've been nice to you all these years, <laughs> and this is just unfair. <laughs> he got a double rebuke that day. But he wasn't thankful. He wasn't thankful. You know, we need to believe that God has given us the tools to change our course now change our minds now, bring every thought into captivity, change our response now, our response to correction.
Because it is mercy, it is love, and it will likely prove salvation. You've heard Brother Dan tell about his mother. So moving and how she came to that surrender. And she didn't want to lose control of her mental faculties, but she got to a place where she was confused. That's the nature of dying. And somebody told her the way things were, and she said, I, I don't think that's how it is. I think something's gone wrong. I think somebody did something wrong. And, and then the voice of authority that she trusted said to her, no, this is how it is. And she said, yes, Jerry. Yes, Brother Joel. Yes, Jesus. Were those her last words, Dan? Those were her last words. Oh, let me die the death of the righteous and let my latter end be like theirs. Okay, then start living the life of the righteous. Start living the faith of the righteous. Start praying the prayers of the righteous. Start worshiping like the righteous. Start loving like the righteous. Laying your life down in the way that those lay their life down whose end you want to imitate. Are you living in an old man's rubble? Are you listening to the father of lies? If you are, then you're headed for trouble. If you listen too long, you'll eventually die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you listen to something too long, you're going to eventually die? Are you puzzled by the way that you're behaving? Do you wonder why you do the things you do? And are you troubled by your lack of resistance? Do you feel that something's got a hold on you? Deep within you, there's a spiritual battle. There's a voice of the darkness and the voice of the light. And just by listening, you've made your decision because the voice you hear is going to win the fight. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can sit in a meeting where God proposes faith that you choose not to listen to, but instead entertain your carnal thoughts that are at enmity against God, and that's how you lose the fight. Do you believe that there is a promise hanging over you right now that you could accept and believe, and a faith would start to energize your formerly feeble efforts? Do you believe it? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this is the victory. You want to be victorious on your deathbed? You want to cross the Jordan? You want to make it all the way? Well, you better accustom yourself to knowing the voice of God and not suppressing the faith that would rise up inside of you and say, I can surely do it. Amen. That's what he says being mixed with faith is. Final stanza, if you're living as a new creation, if you're listening to the father of light, then you're living in a mighty fortress and you're going to be clothed with power and might. You see, we're all going to face temptations. We're all going to feel that inclination. We're all going to wonder if it matters and be enticed to just give it up the, give up the struggle. That's what David said he was going through. It was Asaph or Asaph or somebody's Saph. And he said, then I considered their latter end. Whatever you're going through right now, it's time to get in the house of wisdom. 
Here's the end of all your speculation. Here's the end of all your judgments. How do you want to die? I throw my lot in with Brother Denny and Brother Blair and Brother Robert and Sister Ann and Sister Darla and all of those, Brother Joe and Sister Roxy, all of those who fought the good fight, who finished the race, call no man happy to the day of his death. The end of the matter is better than the beginning and patience is better than pride. Let's set our course according to the realities that we face. Somebody said to me recently, that man has no fear of God. Well, that that just means that he has no reality of life and death. Let's not sit on our high horses. Let's make the decision now to remember the Lord and make the adjustment. You know, I don't want to be ugly, but there are some people who I've looked at and I thought, oh, God, don't let me be like that. I heard about a daughter say that about a mother this week. Don't let me be like that. Amen. Do you want to be one of those people? Because you will be a witness if you're one of those people. But is that the kind of witness you want to be? Do you want to be one of the people that a a parent says to their teenager, you better not go down that path or else you're going to be like so-and-so. The Bible says that when we rebel and Israel stiffens his neck against God, he will become a hissing and a byword. We're going to be a witness. We're going to bring glory to God one way or the other. Is that the kind of witness we want to be? That's not the kind of witness I want to be. Amen. I want people to see my faith and say, I can get those results in my life if I just move in that transparent faith. Oh, and don't give me this garbage that that's not how you are. Well, if God can't change anybody, that's a real dilemma. But if his primary business is transformation, you came to the right place. It's time for you to be different. Well, I don't know how to be different. I'm not like that. Well, you start imitating those who are like that. There's the path right there. Unless you just like your results better. I just feel such an exhortation and such a promise. God is telling us that the generational curse can be broken. It can be broken if we'll accept the truth. It can be broken if we'll press into relationships that hold up a mirror that sets us free. Hold up the law of liberty that allows us to be different. Amen. That suggests that the only reason we remain in our condition is because we lie to ourselves about how bad it is. We don't see how ugly it is. We see it and then turn away and forget. But if we would see it and say, ah, I hate that. I hate that about myself. But God, I know you can help me overcome it. Not in my own strength, but by the power of your Holy Spirit. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You can love me, God. You can help me, Jesus. I can fall on the rock and be broken. If you feel faith right now, let's just pray and ask the Lord to give us new results. Amen. To change us. To change us from the inside out. Pray it like Sister Camille would pray it. Pray it like Brother Denny would pray it. Thank you, Jesus. God, I can be different. God, I can change it right now. By your grace alone, Jesus.
I don't have to resent discipleship. I don't have to hate discipleship. I can love God. I can say, well, this is affirmation that I'm still your son, Lord. People who battle type 1 diabetes or similar conditions, they know that they have a condition that can deceive their thinking. That's not inappropriate to say, is it? We all have conditions that can deceive our thinking. So when somebody has this condition, those around them are often more attuned to the adjustments in their condition than they are. They don't feel their blood sugar changing, do they? But they start behaving in a certain way. Maybe it's a little sluggish. Maybe it's a little cross. And mom's like, have you taken your medicine? You need to put yourself in relationships where you all agree ahead of time and say, I know I've got a condition. Where my blood sugar starts going nuts, or my pride sugar starts going nuts, and I start seeing things all kinds of wacky. And I think she's the problem, and I think he's the problem, and I think my job's the problem, and I start forgetting that I'm the problem. So could you help me? Could you help me? Could you say to me, here you go again? Or something nicer than that, but like that. You know, if you could just believe him, But you don't think that the disease of conceit is as dangerous as diabetes. Diabetes isn't going to take anybody to hell. But pride is. Envy, ambition, self-seeking. These are going to destroy your soul. Vanity is going to waste your life. When you know what that condition is, say to someone you know and trust, say to them, When you see me me start going down this path, speak to me. And I'm not going to judge myself through my cataract-blinded perspective. I'm just going to accept that someone who loves me knows what's going on. And I'm going to recoil because I've seen it happen too many times to disbelieve the grace of God when it's being extended. I know people who have battled psychological conditions that might have landed them in an institute or certainly under heavy-duty medication, but because they decided that they knew the triggers of what this attack felt like. And they said, whenever I start feeling this, I'm going to trust my spouse to tell me this is one of those things. Just by accepting ahead of time that they were going to receive the instruction of somebody not in the affliction, they overcame it completely overcame it without any medication. Amen. That's the power of receiving the grace of God from your brothers and sisters. Can we do that, brothers and sisters? Help us, Lord. Amen. Help us to live the life of the righteous and so we can die the death of the righteous. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.